Uh, it is Tuesday night. Uh, we don't waste a lot of time. We go ahead and get into the word. So if you would, please join me in receiving the best executive pastor on this side of heaven. Amen. He, matter of fact, <clears throat> you know how you, you fill out a job application, job application and uh, you put your work experience down and then the folk will tell you, oh, well, you overqualified for this position. We have one that is overqualified for the executive pastor position, but God bless him and God keep him for, for the work that he is doing and the work that he shall continue to do. I bring to you none other than the living legend. Now, let me try that again. Let me try it one more time, one more time. I bring to you now the living legend. Amen. Dr. S. C. Nash Sr. He says and thinks of me, and I would be doing a marvelous thing. But uh, such as as I am, I come unto thee. How many of you have copies of my book? You don't have it with you. Positive from the black corner. People deliberately key in on the last five chapters. In this our effort. give insight to the members of the Mount Horeb Church and all who would be listening. I think I'm dealing tonight with chapter 19 of the book And the scripture passage, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. And those scriptures read as such, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, 
I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. All right. The exhortation tonight is rejoice. I've spent a whole, well, a long time studying the Bible as a black history book. And I still feel the need to qualify my messages with practical arguments as to the ethnicity of many Bible characters. We've read about and studied across the years so many but such is the case as we read the words of Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 and 5. Paul qualifies who he is by declaring that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. In Acts 23 and 6, Paul says, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. These two verses substantiate that Paul was born of the purest Jewish blood. And we must remember that the Jews of the first century were black. You know the argument. All biblical authorities declare him Noah's son as the father of the black race. And I have argued that if Noah is black, excuse me, if Ham is black, Noah is black, Noah's other two sons are black. Matter of fact, we've argued that if you go beyond Noah, you've got to make his father black and his father black all the way back we to Seth and to Adam and you you have to put a pin in the argument and wonder 
somebody asked me on uh, this interview, what color is God? And I said, well, if you follow the scientific argument, and uh, we men are made in the image, you, you have to argue if God is any color, he's black. The scientific community reveals that the father's blood runs through the child's vein. And the Bible declares that Ham is the child of Noah. And if Ham is black, Noah can't be anything but black. And if Noah is black, then Shem and Japheth, his other two sons, their father, they father different races, but it's only in today's time that we put so much emphasis on the races. At first, in the beginning, we, we talked about heritage and argued that at first men went by heritage. It's only in the 1700s and Blumenbach and others brought in the distinction according to race. And we don't follow that European teaching. And so we are here tonight establishing that Paul is a black man. And I think that this is contrary to many of the modern uh, Hebrews uh, or those who call themselves black Jews, that if you, if you don't see truth in those men of the first century, then all your doctrine is off. And we hate to pinpoint any anybody, but there's a group that argues that Paul is not a Jew. And Paul is not to be referred to. But in our studies, we conclude that Paul also is a black man. And we cannot argue that he's not Hebrew. He says it himself. The authorities were arresting him and his argument was, I'm a Hebrew. And um, he went on to argue 
that he's a Roman because he was born in Rome. But that's, that's not difficult. I argue that I am an Arizonian, though I've lived most of my life in Texas. But if you check the record, I was born in Phoenix. I didn't live in Phoenix long, for mother and father moved to Muskogee, Oklahoma. And when I talk of home, that's, that's the place for me. But the record would show scientifically that I am an Arizonian. As black as I am. <laughs> Couple these truths with the fact that the first whites to embrace Judaism did so in 70, 741 A.D. Now understand, the first century is the time that Jesus and Paul and all of the other disciples lived. Yeah. And you're talking about a group who came down out of the Caucasus Mountains, the Black Sea, and embraced Judaism in 741 A.D., which is 700 years after the death of Jesus. And you discover a major truth. The Jews of the first century A.D. were black. Yes, Peter, James, and John, even Jesus, who were first century, were black. Even Paul, the author of our text, was a black man. Not only was Paul black, but his ministry began with black folk. Simeon and Lucius of Acts 13, 1-8 were black men credited with ordaining Paul. Simon was of Niger and Lucius was of Cyrene. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the darkest tribe of Israel. How wonderful to have the revelation that he who wrote more than half of the New Testament was a black man. How dare black Muslims or anyone else declare that the Holy Bible is a white man's Bible. 
It is a black history book. From the first century letters to the church at Philippi comes wholesome exhortations for 20th, 21st century church. The first exhortation is rejoice. Paul, the black apostle to the Gentile world, exhorts the church to rejoice. Philippians 4 and 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and it behooves the church of the now that she marches toward and through this new millennium to heed Paul's admonition. Rejoice. We ought to experience it today. Rejoice. <laughs> and then consider with me the idealism of the exhortation. Rejoice is an ideal practice for people who know Jesus. The presence of Christ in our lives gives unspeakable joy. Right. You see, living with Jesus makes life so sweet. Regardless of circumstances, you know that truth. Nobody has to clarify that for you. Where did your joy come from? How well do you express it? Living with Jesus makes life sweet. It's that power that can change the world. Yeah. In the experiences of Paul at Philippi, the paradoxical situation makes this exhortation of full meaning. All right, all right. Through the power of Christ, the voice from prison declares that he was making his own atmosphere in which to live. And that rejoicing was the choice for living within a personal reference which interprets the incident of life. You understand Paul was not on some beach somewhere when he quoted and when he wrote this text. No, he was in prison. But Paul saw all things working together for the good of them who love God and 
are called according to God's purpose. He could rejoice though he was in prison because he could see the guiding hand of God and the grace of God controlling and determining the outcome of his life. That's why Paul could write to the church at Corinth and declare all things are of God. And you find that in 2 Corinthians 5 and 8. It takes living life in consciousness of divine presence, declaring the Lord is at hand in Philippians 4 and 5. To our generation, this exhortation might seem idealistic and helpfully so, for it contains the proper direction to guide every child of God in victorious living. It doesn't matter what we're going through and we can paint some ugly pictures. Paul says rejoice. Child of God, the church of today, Rejoice. That's the mandate that Paul has given to us here at Horeb. Rejoice. But then secondly, consider with me the realism of this exhortation. The text says, let your moderation be known with all men. The Lord is at hand. Philippians 4 and 5. The word moderation is the translation of a Greek word having the following meaning. Not being unduly rigorous but being satisfied with less than one's due. Sweet reasonableness, forbearance. The word known refers to knowledge guided by the experience. Kenneth W. Woos in word studies from the Greek New Testament says, the exhortation is therefore to do not keep this sweet reasonableness in your heart. Let, you, let it find expression in your conduct. Thus others will experience it's blessing also, volume one. This is the challenge. This is 
the challenge of our past. And he has brought it to our church. You can't go around talking joy. Show it. Do it. That's the, the real challenge today. Paul is saying the realistic thing for Christians is to be ready to express sweet reasonableness anytime, at all times, for sweet reasonableness subdues explosive tempers stubborn wills and assails extreme in such a way that everyone with whom we come in contact will observe whose we are. You got to show it by doing it that becomes the problem with us today. And I hate to labor with it, but we have everybody talking about Black Lives Matter. And they feel justified in burning justified in their actions. Well, I argue that black lives do matter. But there must be a sweet reasonableness. We ought to know how to act. I know I'm right about it. Paul is saying the realistic thing for the Christian, regardless of his circumstances, is to be ready to express sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness subdues explosive tempers. Stubborn wills and assails extremes in such a way that everyone with whom we come in contact with observes who we are. And as I've argued before, there is no license at any time for us to act anyway we have to show Christ some of us might argue well well preacher if I give up my rights 
and do not stand up for my rights, I may be losing. You may call me a loser. Yet Paul counters with the declaration, the Lord is at hand. Take this to mean that the Lord is near, that he will provide for his own. For others, it may be idealistic to practice Christ's likeness at times when rights are violated. But realism dictates that we trust the Lord at all times. He did say, Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the world. Matthew 20 and 20, 28 and 20. Realistically, we must show that the Lord is near. He is with us in every situation. He is here and he is near in the person of the Holy Spirit to give grace and power for the present situation. He'll come again to reward us for our faithfulness to him and his word. In verse 6 of our text, Paul exhorts the church to be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That word careful denotes the idea of anxiety. Paul is saying, in nothing, be anxious. And this is a realistic word for our times. For there seems to be a fretful anxiety about material things today that robs believers of that desired peace of mind. Like Martha, you remember, while they were at Lazarus' house, the word is given, we are careful. That is, anxious about many things. Luke 10 and 41. When we subdue those anxiousness, anxieties, we do it for Christ. When we should be careful, anxious about his word. Last year, many of us worried about almost everything. But Paul exhorts us in this, this year to worry about nothing. For to worry is sin. 
And this is one sin that will rob us of the peace of mind that still troubles hearts. We will encounter trials. But it's wrong to brood over them. We will have troubles, but troubles should never have us. Such anxieties distract from our mind and distracts our minds from Christ and his word. Such worries prevent our spiritual growth and maturity. Faith ends where worry begins. So never give way to worry. Just learn to trust in the Lord who is near. Paul exhorts that it's realistic to pray and thank God in everything you experience. Now note here, he did not say thank God for everything. There are some trials and troubles we're not thankful for. But we can thank God in everything because we know that no matter what the trouble, God is with us. Paul offers here, the positive approach to the solution of our problems. Namely, he says, we are to come to God in prayer and bring God into every difficulty, every deficiency that in our lives. That's the formula for carefree life careful for nothing but prayerful for everything. Did, did I need to say it again? Careful for nothing but prayerful for everything. God is not too busy to hear our prayers. And Paul says we ought to pray about everything. The word supplication in the Greek is desis, D-E-E-S-I-S, desis, and is used for some special petition. Here's an argument for urgent prayer for some particular need. With thanksgiving, simply means that our prayers and petitions must be mingled with praise. I hear Paul exhorting us. <laughs> Ain't trying to, to tune up here. But Paul exhorts us to pray and find that 
God is answering. Verse 7 of our text says that the peace will be our results. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your heart and mind through Christ. My joy is in Jesus. Nothing and no one can take it away. Who was it that sang the song this joy I have the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. God gives joy. And God substantiates the use of it. My joy is in Jesus. And nothing and no one can take it's from me. Paul, our black brother from the first century, exhorts the black church of the 21st century to rejoice. Rejoice. That's the word. Rejoice. In the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Hmm. Rejoice. Man, I did tell you he was overqualified uh, to be executive pastor. 